Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Chasing Justice. I'm your host, Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. You know, we are at a time and a place in our lives when we're all going to be talking about uh, new me, changing who I am, doing good things, making myself healthier, doing the right things in life, uh, getting a better job, or maybe getting a job at all, going to college, doing well in school, doing well in your job. All of these things come to us at different times in our life. Why do some of us succeed and some of us do not? That's something that I, I want to talk about there for a minute. You know, we all go through this period of, of time when maybe you want to lose weight, okay? Maybe you want to lose weight and you try. It works out for some people. For some people, it doesn't. I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to go out and exercise. And some people do and, and other people don't. So it, it's all a matter of, I think there's some luck to it, but I think it's about perseverance. You really have to want to do something for it to be effective and for it to work for you. All right, so there's a friend of mine, Alan. All right, Alan was on this program. He's a he lives, guy lives in Tennessee. He's an outdoorsman. He's a hunter. He's a fisherman, bow hunting, all that kind of stuff. This guy is my age. He's 60 years old. Now, I'm in pretty good shape, but you look at this guy. He, he posts on, on social media to our group of friends. You know, we're all from high school friends. We're all buddies still. And he posts, he's in the gym at 4.30 in the morning. And he posts these inspirational things. Hey, if you want to do it, you have to get up and do it, right? And it's, it's kind of, I don't know, it is inspiring. Is that I look and I say, how can this guy get up every single day at 4.30? Well, he goes to work, I think, at, at like 6. He starts his job. But he's motivated because he's in great physical shape. And he's like, hey, listen, man, at 60, I want to be around healthy at 90. So I decided, to, you know, 15, 20 years ago to eat right, eat healthy, and, uh, and start working out. And it's become part of his life. Now, he's very motivated to do that. I know over the course of my life, I've gone through these periods of time where I went through that kind of stuff. You know, early on, obviously, I was healthy. I was a sports guy when I was in my, my early years. I got on the police department. And you had to stay in pretty good shape to be in the police department because, you know, you're, you're running after people, you're chasing people, you're wrestling with people. So you really have to stay in pretty good physical shape. You can't, you can't be out of shape that much. But like life does to lots of us over the course of time, now you start to move into your 30s and then your 40s and you slow down a little bit. You know, you lose a step here and there. Yeah, but if you work out, you can stay healthy and, and do better. So I've gone through those periods where I put on a couple of pounds, and the next thing you know, I, I straight, what am I doing, eating and drinking like this? And then I slow down, I start working out again. You feel much better. You know, you always feel better. The, the key is to stick with it. That's the problem. People don't. And you know why? Because any of these kind of major life changes is, is, requires something. It requires you to actually change your life, you know? So if you're somebody that likes to eat uh, ring dings, and uh, drink, uh, you know, six beers a day, and then you expect to lose weight, you're not going to lose weight. You know, you got to kind of cut down on what you're eating. You got to eat healthy. You want to do the right things and, and then work out, exercise, even walking, you know, getting up and moving. I got one of them watches. Um, the kids gave it to me a couple years ago. It's my favorite thing. I always loved the watch. When we all got the smartphones, I stopped wearing a watch because I have a phone on my, I have a watch on my phone. 
but I like Wear to watch. They got me one of these smartphones. One of the things this thing does is it can tell me how many steps a day I'm taking. Now, I think that's fantastic because you start to think to yourself, oh, I walk a lot. I'm busy. I'm busy. And then you find out you're doing 2,500 steps a day. That's not a lot. If you do, I guess a mile is about uh, 2,500 steps. I think a mile is 2,500 steps. Actually, about three feet a step. So that would be uh, 5,200. I don't know. I think it's 2,500 steps. And you realize you're not even walking a mile a day. So this thing actually helped motivate me. And I started keeping track of my steps. And if I had a day that went by, I didn't have 10,000 steps. I was disappointed. Now, if you just carry the phone, which keeps track of your numbers also, I seem to find that you have less steps when it's just a phone. When you're wearing the watch, maybe the watch is more sensitive to your movement and can keep track of you better. You have a higher step count. The bottom line is, what I'm saying is, a lot of people are going to go through this uh, part of their life where, you know, new me, new day, new me, I'm going to do all this stuff. You really have to decide what's important to you. Uh, my wife's my wife's aunt, uh, really a wonderful woman. She was a uh, favorite in the family. Everybody liked her. She enjoyed a glass of wine. She liked to eat and liked to cook. She was great. She had a heart attack when she was about 62 years old. Well, she took it serious. The doctor said, you better cut back. Boom, she dropped tons of weight. She stopped drinking. She uh, ate, ate all kinds of healthy stuff. And, you know, she's been great for the last 10 years. She's been very healthy. So one of these things we have to look at is, what is it that we want? You know, what do we want? I remember this came to me early on. I, and I told you the story about my dad who wanted to start his own business and how hard that was, you know, to start a business and, and put your family through all that. And it ended up working out for him. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away before he could really enjoy it. But the point was, is that he took a chance and he did it, but he had that, that gumption to do that. I have that kind of gumption. You know, when I was younger, uh, you know, everybody in my family, we didn't go to college, right? We didn't go to college. Um, everybody got high school. Well, most of us got high school, and then you had to go to work. You had to find something to support yourself, right? Because uh, back in the day, you didn't live at mom and dad's house till you're 35 years old. At 18 or 19, you were starting to, you know, move out. You wanted to get out and go go see the world, do things. So what we would do is, uh, well, okay, this week I'm a plumber's helper, and uh, two weeks from now, there's an electrician that needs help, and he pays a dollar an hour more. So guess what? Now I'm an electrician's helper. Then you leave that. Hey, I'm going to go cut grass because I'll be outside in the sunshine, and that pays a dollar more than that, you know? That was the kind of careers that, 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 that we had. But some of us stayed in them. Like, I have friends that are, believe it or not, that are 60-something years old, and they're struggling really bad making, uh, you know, $24,000, $25,000 a year. That's it. As a grown adult uh, with no no family attachments, you know, that's a whole nother story what they, you know, had problems with there. But it's all kind of connected to. But the fact is they never bettered themselves. They never did anything else. And I started telling you this uh, in a previous episode. I didn't make a big deal out of it. But because I am a driven person, I am driven to, to do things. You know, if I want to be better at something, I'll go practice it. If I, if I want to learn something, I'll go learn about it. I always wanted a college degree. I always wanted a college degree. Unfortunately, I had to go to work when I was 14, when my father died. And after, uh, after high school was over, I worked full-time to, uh, to you know, earn money to help feed my mother and my brother. That was, that's what I did, because that's what you did back then. You know, that's what your responsibility was. You did it. But I remember graduating high school 
and saying to myself, well, you know, what if I take a college course? Now, a lot of my friends went off to college. You know, they went to have that college experience. I didn't. I went to work. And I had a rock and roll band. You know, I thought that was going to be uh, the thing that was going to drag me forward. I was motivated uh, to write my own songs, perform, and do things because I wanted to get ahead. I, I said, this is the situation I got. I can't go to college. I can't be a brain surgeon. I can't uh, be a lawyer. But I can play guitar. So maybe if I can write songs and, you know, maybe make maybe make some money. So I tried doing that. I was really motivated. But I, I decided to take a college course. Let me just take one college course. Now I got to tell you, I'm not proud of this fact, but when I was in high school, um, you know, the last year I was there, my dad was gone and I was working. So I went in in the morning. I took just enough classes so that I would graduate. And I went home at 11 o'clock in the morning and I went to work. And I, I I was never good at mathematics. I just, I was just not good at, you know, the upper mathematics, not the young kid stuff. I was never really good at that. And when it came to algebra, you know, I didn't really need it. Um, so I didn't bother taking it. I had enough math for my high school degree and I never took it. So when I, when I graduated, uh, probably maybe within the year, I guess, I said, I really want a college degree. So how do I get that? Well, you got to go to school. Well, now I had to pay, right? I had to come up with money on top of everything else. But back then, the community college was, you know, $300 for a class, for a three-credit class. So I said, okay, I guess I'll, uh, I'll take a, a college course and see what it is. So what did I take? I took Algebra. I took Algebra 1. So I, I took Algebra 1. Okay, let me try it. I didn't do it in high school. I was disappointed in myself that I didn't do it. But, you know, I, you know I, I, over the years, I've learned to forgive myself. I had to work. So therefore, when you got to work, you got to work. So I took Algebra 1, and you know what? I got 100 in the class. And I, I was proud of that. And I felt like, hey, I, I could probably do this. So, I don't know, six months later, I took a second class. Algebra 2. Imagine that. I took Algebra 2, and I got 100 in that class. Well, the next year, and, and again, that's how slow it was. I was busy working, and by now I was, uh, you know, getting married and starting to raise kids and trying to figure out how I'm going to feed everybody there. And I took a third class. It was a, a social studies, world history thing, because I love history. I'm a history buff. I love history. I think there's so many lessons in history. Uh, I, took, uh, I took history, and I got 100 in that class. And I got to tell you, it motivated me to say, you know, this is really hard. It's expensive. I don't have time. But I want a college degree, and I'll go and earn myself a college degree. Well, how long did that journey take? At that point, I was probably 22 years old. In 23, I went to the police department. I started working as a law enforcement officer. I really loved it. They sent me to lots and lots of training, which I thought was great. A lot of it you got from you got college credits. When you went to the police academy here in New Jersey where I went, you came out of there with, I think, 18 college credits, psychology, all kinds of stuff they gave you when you're in the police academy through the local community college. So by the time that was done, I had, I don't know, three, six, nine, and 20. I had 29 credits. I was halfway to a, uh, an associate's degree. So I started uh, taking more courses, uh, slow and slow and slow. Well, let me tell you, long story short here. This is, uh, you know, way into the future. And I didn't, I didn't bring this up last year uh, when it happened, but last year, about a year ago from now, I completed uh, the last 10 courses I needed at a four-year college, and I was uh, awarded 
a a bachelor of arts degree uh, in uh, in the topics that I you know it was, it was all about you know uh, management. That's what I do, right? Uh, so I have a certificate for certified public management. I can run a town, right? I learned how to do that. I went to that training, got certified, and and that my bachelor of arts degree is in uh, management, managing people, managing places, managing things, and I'm very proud of that. Now, did I wave that around? Did I do I do anything with it? No, I don't do anything with it, but I wanted it, and I stuck it out for over twenty something years, probably longer than that actually. And I finally got my degree because you can do these things if you put your mind to it. Now, was it tough taking all those courses? You know, re- I, these are real college courses. You know what I mean? I had to take uh, and you had to, you know, you had to write papers and then you had to do all research. And you know, it's good. I do all that kind of stuff anyway for my writing. But it was interesting. You know, I got a Homeland Security certificate in there because I do Homeland Security stuff. But the bottom line is you can do this if you put your mind to it. And that's where we're all coming to, right? We're all getting ready for that new me, new day kind of thing going on. And and I just wanted to offer that out. You know, uh, people have motivated me and said, you can be anything, you can do anything. My mother, God God rest her soul, Corrine, uh, she always said that to me. You could be anything, you could do anything. And she, was, she pushed me really hard. The converse side of that is how hard do you push your kids? How hard do you push your kids? Well, uh, I pushed my kids really hard because, uh, you know, I was successful. I was I had a side business when I was in law enforcement. Uh, I worked extra details. I did a lot of stuff to take care of my family. But as we moved along, I, I said, when my kids are ready, they're going to go to college. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care how much extra work I have to do. My kids will be college kids because nobody in my family, very few, very few, actually went to college. We were all labor people, you know. Uh, my father was uh, was the king of the hill. He had his own business and he was successful for the time he had left on, on the earth. Uh, but I thought it was a great example to me that you can do it. And that's where I did what I... So I said, my kids are going to college. That's going to be what they do. And I pushed them since the time they were little. Do good in school, do good in school. I was blessed that my four children are all brilliant. They are really, really smart and they did very well in school. Uh, they did really, really well in school. Uh, my son Joe, Alex, my daughter Marisa, and my son Jack now, who's who's in college, and, and he's a, a brilliant kid as well. I pushed them all. Uh, I pushed one of them a little too hard. I pushed one of them really hard. He did a couple of years in college, got enough for an associate's degree, and then said, listen, I didn't want to go to college. I want to be a a builder. I want to build houses. I want to build bridges. I want to do things. And he decided to move on and become a professional union carpenter. And he's doing fantastic uh, monetarily and mentally because he's doing what he loves. And when I said to him, you know, why didn't you get your degree? Why didn't you stay? He says, listen, you wanted me to go to college. I wanted to build things. And I said, well, at least, you know, you got the associates, um, it's, you, you met me halfway, and okay, I shouldn't have pushed that hard. So I made sure that I, I told my daughter and my youngest son, listen, you don't have to go to college if you don't want to. Don't let me push you into this. Uh, because I realized you can push too hard sometimes, and I, I did. I, I pushed uh, really, really hard about it, and I had to learn that lesson. All right, so all of us, as this comes up in our lives, whether it's now 
or whether it's next month or the month after that or, or a year from now. When you say, I want to do something, you have to make the determination that you're actually going to do it. It's not, you know, if it's losing weight, it's not a, I'm going on a diet for eight weeks, I'm going to lose 10 pounds and then go back to the way you were eating and drinking because you're just going to put it back on. You have to make a determination of what is best for me. Now, here I am at 60, God almighty, whoever knew I'd get to be 60. At 60, I'm looking down the road saying, I want to be super healthy, you know, for the next 30 years. If, I, if, I, if God gives me that much time left on the planet, 30 more Christmases and Easter's and summers and all that stuff, I really want to be here for that. So, you know, eat right. One of the things I do, I tell you about it all the time. I started taking Healthy Cell. This uh, immune boost, boost stuff is amazing. You know, I came across it because it, it's here on the network, and I said, hey, let me try it. I was looking for something to help me stay healthy, and I got to tell you, it has changed my health profile. I got to say, I lost, um, I don't know, since since last year, I lost 45 pounds. Uh, I'm doing 12 to 14,000 steps every single day, and I, I feel a 1,000% better. I haven't gotten sick, so I'm telling you, healthy cell. I keep talk, talking to you about it, and this happened to be the right uh, moment for us to get together with this um, so that we could we could cover being healthy and I could tell you about you know healthy selling make good decisions is what I'm trying to tell you okay so where are we going now well I guess if we stay on the health kind of a thing let's think about all this talk now about COVID re-lockdowns or COVID masking up again are you putting that mask back on are you putting that mask back on well I gotta tell you first of all if the mask actually worked, if it really kept you healthy, you know, from, from these different diseases, I would say, okay, if, if we're in the middle of a pandemic where millions of people are dying and that will really protect us, okay, you make sense. But the, the masks, the ones people are wearing, those little paper blue things and all the color-coded ones too they have, they have made out of material that's, you can have tiger stripes, you can personalize yourself, right, so it matches your outfit. None of them protect you from anything. Maybe your spittle doesn't get on somebody and they, okay, maybe there's a benefit there if you're a sickly person. But other than that, the mask never did anything for you. That was a, a, a compulsion kind of a tool and everybody was looking for something to try and protect themselves and protect their families, right? So people jumped in, I'll wear a mask, I'll do it, I'll do it. But are you going back to that mask? There's a school district here in New Jersey who has said all kids coming to school and staff and everyone, when they come back from... Uh, any time off uh, in the next month or so, they will be wearing a mask. So they're remasking. There's going to be a big push to remask. Um, are you going to do it? Are you going to follow that uh, and and remask? I don't know that I'm going to do it. I don't think I'm going to remask. Um, it's kind of scary. This whole thought of of going back into that again. But they're going to try and do it. They're going to try and do it. So. There's my kind of thoughts on health, and that's coming up now. My son's in college, and it's it's one of the it's it's a really great school. It's an excellent school, but they were pushing the vaccines and the boosters and uh, masking and a third booster and an eighth booster and a ninth booster, and you know, at 18 years old, uh, I was uncomfortable having him make his own decision. But hey, you know, you're 18 years old, you have to you have to live. When I was 18, I had no father to guide me. Uh, and I made my own decision. So I, I said, you have to make your own decision. And he decided to take the vaccine and a booster. 
uh, but he won't take another one. Now we've all seen as the truth starts to come out, as the Twitter world, we start to unravel and see all this censorship and all this nonsense uh, hiding the truth uh, from people. Information was blocked about, you know, the health care and all that. We're starting to see that uh, there were a lot of problems with the, with the vaccines. I'm sure it, sell, it saved some people. I'm sure it helped some people. But other people, it did hurt. There's lots of people who were injured uh, from the vaccines. But he says he's not taking another one. He says, I'm not doing it. I did the two, and that's it. I'm not afraid of it. Um, move on. Now, Kathleen and I, we had COVID twice. I told you that. My wife and I, we had COVID twice. Uh, even my father-in-law, Ted, uh, 89 years old. Ted just had COVID, and he kind of breezed right through it. We had medication. We actually had doctors who gave us medication to fight it. So if, if this comes back, are we all going to go back into that? We got locked down again? I guess it all depends on who's in charge of the country, right? Uh, who's in charge of your state? whether or not you'll be locking down. So, hey, elections have consequences. So I just wanted to cover that uh, that area. Now, another person who's, uh, who's big, big in the news right now, uh, is Michelle Obama. Now, she seems like a very nice person. She seems like she was a very good mother. Um, you know, she's articulate. Uh, she goes out. She, she presents her points of view very, very well. Well, she's written a book. And I, I watched uh, a news program the other night where they sent somebody out um, to go talk to people and say, hey, uh, you know, they were at a Michelle Obama event. And, What's her book about? And these people obviously were uh, progressives. They were liberal people. And they were like, oh, I don't know, but whatever it is, it'll be great. Um, and what do you think about Michelle Obama running for president? Now, she has said she doesn't want to run for president. That's not her interest. She doesn't want to go there. Uh, but there seems to be a, a, a pretty, pretty big consensus on both sides of the aisle that if she ran, she would win hands down. She would win hands down. She'd beat anybody. She'd beat Trump. She'd beat DeSantis. She would beat anybody that you could put up. She would be the next president of the United States. Would you vote for Michelle Obama? I mean, what, what skill set does she have to be president of the United States? I mean, what, what skill set do any of them have? Uh, you have to have some background in dealing with people. You have to be able to negotiate. You have to be smart. You have to be intelligent. Uh, I think she's smart and intelligent, uh, but I don't know experience she's ever had negotiating anything or or dealing with running a corporation with uh, when well, that's what the government is corporation with you know millions of uh, of people that work for you. I don't know that she has that skill set. I also don't know she wouldn't be able to handle it. Uh, once you get there, you have put people around you that know what they're doing. Uh, people have experience in government, and you, they give you advice, and you make the decisions. That's what president really is, right? You're making decisions about things. So trying to understand uh, this phenomenon of Michelle Obama, you kind of get this feeling that, that people really haven't learned their lesson. You know, I look at the, the midterms that we, we went through not too long ago, and the country is so upside down. Inflation is ridiculous. We have no energy. Uh, we're all paying ridiculous amounts for everything. The, the housing market is starting to fall apart. Interest rates are going through the roof. We're heading for a bad economic time if we continue on this path. And people had a chance to change that, to change the storm and say, we're not doing this. And all they really did was flip the House by a couple of seats so that the Republicans run the House. They didn't take the Senate. They didn't take a huge majority in the House. Uh, nothing. People just did not respond this time around like you would expect that they would. Uh, I, I thought for sure it would have been uh, 
would have been a big time uh, change. But that's where I'm saying people are looking at Michelle Obama and saying, well, she's nice and she's wonderful and she'll be a great president with no no real understanding of, of what could possibly happen. How does she feel about things? You know, because if, if you're a decision maker as a president and now you have uh, power to make decisions for the whole country, what kind of decisions would you make? And what we always said here at Chasing Justice was that it's about policy, not necessarily about the person. Now, of course, if you have someone who is a uh, is corrupted, if you have someone who uh, cheats and lies and steals, uh, like it appears that the Biden family does, that's not someone you should have in that office. But people voted for him anyway, right? Because they didn't like the other guy, the orange man, and in enough numbers, and maybe, maybe or maybe not. I know we've had that discussion before, but hey, Joe Biden won. He's the president. And look what his policies have done. In a very short period of time, uh, he has decimated the country and put us in this position. And there, he's not turning around. He's not turning back. He's not going, hey, this didn't work, so let me uh, tilt to the center. No, he was just emboldened. Uh, he was just emboldened by the fact that, um, hey, I didn't lose my shirt. I didn't lose the Senate. I only lost a couple of seats. And we know the Republicans don't have the guts to do anything anyway. You know, the big finance bill, another $1.7 trillion dollars. Well, how many of our Republicans fought that uh, to say, no, we're not doing that. You know, give, give the new Congress a chance to. No, these uh, these dopes voted for it. So basically, they took the power right out of their own hands and gave it back to the people whose policies they disagree with. So that's that's it's almost unbelievable to me um, that that this has kind of happened. Right. What do we have left? What do we have left to look forward to? Well, we have two more years of what's going on, and we could have Michelle Obama. If she decided tomorrow to say, you know what, I think I'd like to be president of the United States, um, then maybe she will be. Maybe she will be president of the United States. What would her policies be? Would they be pro-American, pro-capitalism? Uh, would they be pro-tradition? Or would she continue in the line of this woke, crazy, socialist path that we all seem to be on? What would she vote for? And it looks like if she, and I, I don't know, I know Hillary wants to get back in. She sees, you see the glint in her eye. Oh, I can push old Joe out of the way and then I'll, I'll finally get to be president. And you know what? She might. What people just showed in the last election was that they're not really thinking they're not really thinking clearly, like you and me, saying, hey, what's better for our country? What are better policies for our country? And, and what should we do here? Uh, they're, they're voting on, on stuff. I don't, I don't even know how they're making these calculations to say, well, it's horrible. I can't afford it. It's rotten. The country's going down the tube, but I'll vote for more of the same, please. I'll have another. Thank you. Because we can't have the Trump guy coming back. We can't have that. Right? I, I, un unbelievable uh, that we find ourselves here. So I don't know where you're at. But I liked, uh, you know, talking about uh, the health and, and this and that. And we know, uh, how about weather-related things? Global warming, is that on everybody's mind right now? Global warming? No, I don't think it is. Uh, many parts of the country are freezing to death, literally freezing to death. I think uh, in Buffalo they have that crazy snow. This is a, this is a huge, I think they have uh, 28 people died from that snow. Yeah, it, it can be a terrible thing, the weather, whether it's blazing heat kills us or the freezing cold. And 
right now we have to look around and say, is it global warming or is this just what happens as the earth spins around through the sky? Well, listen, you contemplate that, think about it, and we'll be back in a minute with more Chasing Justice. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the povidone iodine-based nasal spray Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20%. By using promo code OUTLOUD. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. All right, now, welcome back to Chasing Justice. I'm your host, Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. So listen, as we, as we try and come up with topics here, as I sit and I go through my, my I call them my pages of outrages, you know, that's, we get into a lot of things, uh, what's going on in the world, what's going on in our country. One of the things we're looking at now is we're seeing this, this crazy rise in crime, this, this amazing attack on civility, attack on the rule of law, attack on our very lives and our property, and we're, we're seeing this over and over and over again. Well, recently... Um, I watched this thing called the 7-5, right? This was about the 75th precinct uh, in Manhattan in the 1990s and the Jim Dowd era. Jim Dowd was a police officer uh, who was corrupted, who robbed drug dealers. He went from being a cop to being a, a street criminal who made a ton of money for himself, uh, involved a lot of other cops, and they got caught. And these guys all went to jail uh, it was a tough time for their families, a tough time for them. They did the wrong thing and they, they got involved. But when you look at that, I, as I watch this uh, documentary, The 7-5, and I suggest you, you watch it. It's very interesting uh, to look at, at justice and how, how people can go wrong. And I, as I'm watching it, I'm, I'm comparing it to 
you know, uh, as a police investigator, I would investigate all kinds of crimes. And you see, oh, you say to yourself, what's the modus operandi? You know, how did they do this crime? Why did they do the crime? So what my partners and I used to do is if we had a suspect and we brought them in and we interviewed them and, and they, uh, they rolled over and they told us what they did and they admitted their, admitted their actions and all that and they were charged. When we were done with that and we had their statement all locked in, uh, a lot of times we would then try and, try and add stuff for our, our mental Rolodex. We'd say, okay, listen, here's a cup of coffee, a soda, whatever. Thank you for telling the truth. Appreciate you giving a statement. You know, we'll tell everybody in the court you told the truth. You did the right thing. And then, you know, maybe that mitigates your punishment a little bit. Uh, but we found out. So, so, let me ask you something. Why did you pick that house to go into? Or how did you choose that victim? Or where did you decide to look at to figure out how to run a scam? Which scam did you pick and why? What were your victims all about? The whole idea was to understand the mentality of people who commit crimes so that uh, later on you, come, you have another case to investigate. You have something to go to. You have a depth chart, so to speak. You go back, hey, listen, this is another burglary spring, uh, string, a bunch of burglaries. Uh, let's look at the pattern. Where is the burglar hitting? What kind of houses are they hitting? What kind of places are they going after? That kind of thing. And then you look back at the interviews you did of burglars. And you try and figure out, uh, okay, what did they tell us about how I picked a particular house? And you compare that to the pattern you have in front of you, and it can help you investigate going forward. Right? A lot of cops will tell you it's better to be lucky than to be smart. And a lot of police work is that. But for, for the really tough things, you know, the, the investigator has really got to be smart about things, has to look at the history of things. And, and that's what we used to do all the time, and I, I really enjoyed it. So when I look and I say, how did these guys go so wrong? Uh, you know, you start out, I got to tell you, uh, when I teach cops, I teach police officers all across the country. And one of the things when we talk about, it's a universal kind of a thing that, that comes to the police officers. When you're trying to get the job, you're always asked the question, well, why do you want to be a police officer? And everybody out there that has law enforcement experience, you're probably chuckling right now because you know what the answer is, same as it is for every cop and everywhere in the country. The pat answer is, I want to help people. You know, that's uh, that sounds like a good answer. Um, and for the most part, it's true. People that are that want to get into law enforcement and firefighting and EMT and all this public service uh, kind of uh, careers, they really do have the feeling that they want to help people. They want to be a part of their community to make it better, make it safer, make it, uh, make it a better place for people to live and raise their families. And that's absolutely true. But it's just a funny thing that that is a, a, that is a patent answer. Because in reality, uh, ask any officer you know, how often do you actually help people? Let's think about what, well, it depends on, you know, like everything else, we've got to define what does it mean to help. All right, so if someone is a, uh, is a burglar and they're constantly breaking into people's houses and you arrest them, how do you help them? How is that helping? They end up going to jail. Well, maybe you pull them out of that life of crime, that they stop being a criminal, they stop living in a criminal lifestyle. Sure, they go to jail for a while, but maybe they also had a drug problem or a drinking problem or some other kind of problem. And while they're in jail, they dry out, they get sober, and they have an opportunity for education when you're in jail. You can do a lot of things for yourself if you choose to do it. Uh, and maybe you come out a better person. So maybe in that way, you define it, you're helping them. Um, but other than that, when you look at it, we saw people at their worst. We saw people when they were suffering, when they were victimized, uh, when they did horrible things to other people. 
uh, when people were brutalized, and you say, well, who am I actually helping? So that, that answer becomes kind of funny. Why do you want to be a cop? Well, I want to help people. Well, what I found was that in reality, you probably do help a lot more people than you ever really know about. So a column I wrote a long time ago was about exactly that topic. Um, and I'll get back to Jim Dowd in the 7-5 in a minute, but I'm just kind of taking a tour around here to kind of give you some police background on stuff. We go to tons and tons of calls. We arrest lots and lots of people for all kinds of things. And, you know, we go to court and we do trials and all that stuff. Well, I was working one night and I'm sitting in the detective bureau. And uh, I get a call from the, from the front desk. says, hey, uh, there's a woman up here. She's asking for you. She wants to speak to you. And I said, who is it? And they said, uh, you know, Muriel Johnson. I'm like, Muriel Johnson? I, I can't say I know Muriel Johnson, but she knows my name. So let me go see what this is all about. And you never know when somebody comes through the front door what they're going to talk to you about. So I went upstairs and I saw this woman probably at the time I was, I don't know, 35, 35 years old or so. And this woman was, yeah, she looked like 55, 58, that kind of an age. And I saw her and I said, hi, how are you? She goes, oh, Detective Pangaro, I just want to thank you so much. You, I just had to come in here and talk to you. And I, I said, what, what, you know? I got to be honest with you, I, I can't really place you. How do we know each other? She goes, well, you and I ever, never actually met, um, but you arrested my son several times. He was, he was really hooked up on heroin, really bad, and he was heading for the grave, and you arrested him a couple of times, and the last time you arrested him, uh, you talked to him, and basically you told him that he was throwing his life away and that he was making my life and his father's life and his brother's and sister's lives miserable, and everybody around him was suffering because of his behavior and that he really should pay attention to that and try and do something about it. Now, I'm trying to remember, you know, that was a kind of a thing that I guess, I guess a lot of cops that, you know, try to help people, uh, they will say to somebody, you know, you get to the point where, hey, how, how long are you going to be doing this? How many times do we have to arrest you and lock you up? Why don't you try and find a way to have a better life? Kind of matches what we were talking about, right? In the first, uh, first part of the episode, we were talking about making changes, positive changes for your life. You have to really decide to do it. Well, anyway, this woman tells me this, and I said, oh, uh, and, and how's he doing? Figuring, you know, I had no idea what she was going to tell me. She goes, well, I got to tell you, I just came from the hospital where his wife had my first grandchild, a little baby girl, and she's absolutely beautiful, and the only reason she's here is because my son listened to what you told him. He took it to heart. He cleaned up his life. He found a woman that he absolutely loves, and they just had their first baby, my granddaughter, and I was so overwhelmed, I had to come in and thank you. And then she started crying, and I'm crying, and the dispatcher, <laughs> the dispatcher's in the, through the window watching us, and she's listening, and she's crying. Everybody, it was wonderful. It was really a warm and wonderful moment. And we hugged each other, and out the door she went, and, and I came in, and the dispatcher says to me, she goes, wow, that was amazing. You know, how, how often do you, how well do you know that guy? And I'm like, the name sounds familiar because I arrested him a couple times, but I couldn't tell you. I had no idea that he was even still out there. He was just somebody I arrested, gave him a little advice, you know, try to do what I could to help people. And uh, in this particular case, it worked. What it taught me what it taught me, though, for all my law enforcement brothers and sisters out there, is that we probably do a lot more good than we realize we're doing. 
We probably are actually helping people. We just don't always realize it. They don't always come back and tell you. They don't come back and say thank you. They go on with their lives uh, in, in a quiet gratitude that that's, you did something uh, that maybe straightened them out or put them on the right path or, or did something. Um, but it was absolutely amazing. So when I see that side of it, I now look at uh, this Jim Dowd and his crew. And they started out as good, decent people who wanted to be cops. They wanted to help their community. And they went into law enforcement at a time in New York when it was very, very bad. You know, the crack epidemic was going crazy. Uh, and these cops get out there. And, and I guess he was on the job, I don't know, a couple of years according to the, to the thing. Maybe like eight or nine years he was on the job. And he comes across an incident where he stops a drug dealer. He stops a drug dealer, and the guy has got no license plates on the car. The, the car is unregistered. It's un, uninsured. Uh, the driver obviously doesn't have a driver's license, and he stops this guy, and he looks, and he sees on the floor in a bag next to the guy rolls of money, $100 bills, tons of them, all rolled up in balls, right? Drug dealer money. And he says, and I looked at that, and I talked to the guy, and it was obvious to me and to the guy that this guy's a drug dealer. And all that money is drug money. And if I take it from him and arrest him for, you know, whatever, maybe he had drugs in a car too, whatever. And I arrest him, uh, I'm going to voucher in all that money, and, and it's gone. And then there'll be another drug dealer out here making all kinds of money. So here's, here's what his thinking was, and this is where he turned. He had this opportunity where he said to the guy, you know something? You can get locked up. Now, I'm paraphrasing from the movie. You can get locked up right now. I could take you to jail. Or, you know, maybe you buy me a really nice steak and lobster dinner, and, uh, and we both go our separate ways. And with that, he said, the drug dealer reached into the pile of money and peeled out a couple of hundreds of dollars of bills, handed it to him. He put it in his pocket, and he said, uh, that's it. Yeah, that's it. See ya. And the guy drove off. And at that moment... He said, wait a minute, I'm out here, you know, working for a very low pay, for a very low pay in a very dangerous job. I feel unappreciated. And here's all of this basically free money flying around out here from these drugs. Why can't I take advantage of it? Now, here's the caveat. If you didn't like your job, you felt you were paid too low, it was too dangerous, you should have quit and went and did something else. You don't turn into a criminal. Let's be crystal clear about that. But this was his thought, is that, you know what, nobody's looking, nobody's paying attention out here. It's, it's like the Wild West. People are being murdered left and right. you got to think of New York in that, in that day and age, in Brooklyn, where I think he was, in the 775 precinct. So he had a partner, and eventually he convinced his partner that, hey, listen, why don't we uh, Why don't we do what we got to do to get some money off the street here? You know, we're not doing. Uh, and, and next thing you know, I think he said their paychecks at the time were like six hundred and six hundred and ten, six hundred twelve dollars a week is what they were bringing home in their paycheck. Six hundred twelve dollars. So that's twenty four hundred dollars a month. What's that? Thirty thousand a year they're making. And they started realizing if they stopped the right drug dealer, um, they could get thirty thousand dollars on a stop. And that's a whole year's salary that they put in their pocket. And they started doing it uh, over and over and over again. Eventually, they reached out to the community of drug dealers 
and they tried to make a deal with one of them and said, hey, listen, you, uh, you need to know when the cops are going to raid you. You need to know when they have information about you. So uh, me and my partner can help you. Uh, we want, uh, I think, what was how much was it? $8,000 a month. We want $8,000 a month, and we will give you all this information. Well, to the drug dealer who's moving millions of dollars worth of cocaine and heroin around, $8,000 to find out that the cops are going to come and hit their place, take all their drugs, their money, lock everybody up, well worth it. So this guy makes a deal, and they're going to get $8,000 a month. Now, you got to figure, what are they making? Right? $25,000 a year, $30,000 a year. They're making $3,000 a month, not even. And they're going to get $8,000 per month. Well, they, of course, they started buying houses. They started going on vacations. They, they did all the stupid things that people do when they get money when they don't have money. Well, this turned into uh, a back and forth with these drug dealers. And it went on for quite a long time until somebody... Now, one of the things Jim Dowd did was he ran out and bought a beautiful red Corvette. And his wife is in the movie, too. And she's telling him, what are you doing buying a Corvette? You're going to stand out like a sore thumb at the police station. Nobody has money for a Corvette. And he drove it to work anyway. And people started to notice that this guy had this car. Well, eventually, like it happens in drug world and in crime world, if you stay in the game long enough, you're going to get caught or somebody you know is going to get caught. And they are going to want to flip and help themselves out of their own charges. So they'll start to give up information. That's how you flip people and you get an informant. And somebody got flipped and they said, hey, listen, I can uh, help myself a lot. I can tell you about uh, some dirty cops. And they said, oh, yeah, what are you going to tell me? He goes, uh, all I, na- I, I know the guy is uh, he's the red Corvette guy. Now, everybody in that internal affairs unit knew about this cop driving this brand new red Corvette at a patrolman's salary. And they started to pay attention to him. Long, long and short of it is, they ended up uh, arresting them, uh, the whole crew of them. Uh, it was a huge black eye, and they testified before the uh, the police commission. I'm sure they got some kind of a deal because I think Jim Dad did 12 years in prison. His partners all did 10 or 11 or 12 years in prison, and they got out, and, and then they made this documentary. But what's interesting is that one of the guys in that crew um, is is a person that's known to an acquaintance of mine. And he has agreed to come on here on Chasing Justice uh, in the next couple of weeks. And we're going to talk to him about what, what turned him around. What made him give up a good, decent life for a life of crime. And, and what does he think about it now? You know, because now it's, they, they got caught in 93. They went to jail 2003. They've been out another 10 or 12 or 15 years since they've been out. How did their life change? And if they could go back and do it all over again... Would they do the same thing? Was it was it that powerful to have that kind of money and lifestyle to give up 12, 13 years of your life uh, and become a criminal? How about you? Could you become a criminal? You know, you're sitting there listening to this story and saying, wow, that's, I don't know, man, that's a lot of money. That's, that's a lot of money. And they, they, they did make a ton of money. Uh, but they, they went to prison and they ruined their reputations. They were, they were very bad. Apparently, they got involved in a lot of bad stuff. Um, the last thing that they did while well, they were out on bail for their original charges was uh, him and his partner uh, decided to make a deal, a contract, with a local drug dealer who wanted to kill one of the other drug dealer's wives, and they were going to kidnap her and turn her over to them. Uh, and the police found out about it, and of course they took them off as they were about to do it, uh, and that was added to their crimes. But how could you go from being a good person 
to being a person who would commit a crime, to commit a crime of money, taking money from a drug dealer, right? You're not killing people. You're just stealing money that they don't really own either. To turning around and you're going to grab a woman from her home, even if she's a bad woman, and you're going to turn her over to people that you know are going to execute her. How do you do that? How do, how, do you, how do you turn on the inside and change like that? And that's what I'm hoping to find out. And I don't want to tell you the guy's name, uh, but he's one of the guys in the movie. Um, I've spoken to him. And it should be an interesting conversation because I'm hoping to learn from him uh, why he did this. And what does he think about himself now? Would he have gone back and done it all over again? Because he's a tough guy. I'm telling you, this is a tough dude when you learn about him. Uh, he was kind of like the enforcement guy for the group. Uh, so I'd be interesting to see what he had to say. So we're going to look forward to that. But The 7-5, you can find that movie on, I know it's on Prime Video, uh, but it's really good, The 7-5. I would suggest that you go watch it, and then you'll be all up to speed when we have our, our guest on in the next couple of weeks. Right, so as long as we're on the crime story, uh, let me tell you a little story about a situation like that uh, that I was personally involved with. And it was, it's one of those things... You know, you, you stop people when you're a cop. You stop people, you arrest them, you do search warrants at people's houses. And that's why the police are called the finest, all right? Our, our, our firefighter brothers and sisters, they are the bravest because running into a fire, you got to be pretty brave to do that. But the police are called the finest because we do have what I call, what Lieutenant Joe calls, a backstage pass to life. Uh, as a law enforcement officer, we see behind the curtain, so to speak, of people's lives. You know, you get a search warrant, a search warrant is given to you by a superior court judge, and that, that document basically says, I order you to go to this location, make forced entry if you have to, and go through these people's stuff and take any evidence that you find. That is a very, very powerful thing, and, and I've, I've been the affiant on hundreds of warrants. I've, I've uh, served hundreds of warrants, and I never forgot how powerful that is uh, to be respectful of people's stuff and things. You know, you take the evidence and you move on. Well, we know that there's human nature, just like Jim Dowd and his crew, that people can turn. So one night I was working. I was the detective. It was a 4 to 12 shift. Uh, me and my partners were out and about doing detective stuff. And I hear this patrol officer, um, and he makes a, a, a stop, a suspicious person stop at one of these local motels. We had these no-tell motels where people rent them for the hour, the day, or the week, or whatever. And you hear him call out there, and... Within a minute, you know, he must be interacting because everybody's just kind of listening. We're sending, you know, there's a backup going down there to help, to help him out, see what's going on. And all of a sudden he calls out, headquarters, I got one under arrest for narcotics. You know, send me another car. In the meantime, the second officer arrives. And they're there for about another five minutes or so. And they say, hey, uh, detective, are you on the road yet? Can you swing up over here? Can you come to this hotel room? I said, sure. So I'm assuming that you know, there's something there. There could be evidence. There could be evidence of another crime or, or somebody there wants to talk to me and they want to roll and help themselves. I don't know what they got. But the, the cops would ask for a detective all the time because we have increased skill sets and we have more experience at a lot of things. And uh, so we go down to try and help them out. See, helping people again, right? So I get down to this motel and on the second floor, I see the patrolman, the one patrolman who made the initial stop. He's standing there and he sees me. He's jumping up and down. He's like so excited um, and, he, and, he's, and he's going, come on, come on up here, come on up here. And I said, okay, well, in the meantime, I see the other officer. Uh, he takes the, the person that's under arrest, takes him down, puts him in the police car, uh, and then he comes back up to the room, and I'm looking around, and then there's cocaine 
all over the place. I mean, there's bags of cocaine. So what the officer did, saw this guy. The guy ran from him. Uh, he chased the guy, right? And he sees cocaine in the room. And he, you know, makes an arrest, arrests the guy. So with that, the second officer now comes up, um, comes into the room, and he goes, show him, did you show him, did you show him, did you show him? And he goes, no, not yet. I was waiting for you to get up here. And I said, what, what didn't you show me? Because there was probably two ounces of coke laying around. That was a lot of coke back then, you know, for, for a single arrest like that. And he goes, look at this, look at this. And he opens up um, like a closet that's in there, and there's two kilos of cocaine. Now, at the time, a kilo was about $20,000. So he had $40,000 worth of drugs here. I'm like, that is a great arrest. I mean, that's a really good arrest. He goes, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. Look at this. Look at this. And he goes over to the dresser. And he pulls the dresser out from the wall a little bit. And he goes, look, look in there, look in there. And I look behind the dresser. And there was a, um, a package of cash, $20 bills, um, that were all folded up together and they were covered in uh, like a cellophane, clear cellophane. You could see it was clearly money. And it was about three and a half feet long. That's how big this thing of money was. And I said, holy moly, you know, that's crazy. Let's uh, get some gloves on. Let's take it out because you're going fing to fingerprint it, right? You're going to dust it for fingerprints and find out who was touching it because it might have other suspects, all that kind of thing. So we take it out and we sit it on the bed and there's two kilos of cocaine and there's all this cash sitting there. And the three of us are just kind of staring at it because this is an amazing arrest. This is like big time, you know, drug arrest for the Jersey Shore. You know, it's not New York City. We get 100 kilos, but a couple kilos and, and what had to be fifty or $60,000 cash in small bills. And we're all kind of staring at it, looking at it. And it was exciting, like I said, because it was a good arrest. But at the same time, there was an unspoken conversation going on in the room and I could feel it. I could feel that conversation as we're all looking at that money and those drugs. And it's not so much the drugs, but that money. You could just see and feel the temptation that that was. And I knew I wasn't going to take it. And I didn't think these two guys would take anything. I thought they were two pretty good guys. But the fact was, you could feel the temptation. It was sitting right there in front of you. You know, if you if you took, you peeled off $10,000 out of that pile... You, nobody would ever know. And you'd have a couple thousands of dollars each. It would be one of the, you could just feel that temptation. And I said, I have to put a stop to this because this is, before somebody does something stupid and gets themselves in trouble, I said, fellas, listen, did you take any of this money? And they looked at, what? No, no, we didn't take any money. I said, are you positive? You didn't take any other money? This is still, the, he goes, no, it's still wrapped up the way it was. And now the cop looks at me and he was as honest as the day is long. And he says, we didn't take any, but man, I sure thought about it. I said, I know. I think it's a natural human thing to think about that. But fellas, we're not taking this money. We're not taking any of this money. It's not ours. That's not right. You will ruin your lives. And they both shook their head and agreed and said, good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad we're all on the same page. I said, now, take that stuff out to the car, get it into headquarters, uh, and let's be done here. And we did. And it was all good. And it turned out to be like 60, dollars or $64,000. This guy, uh, the, the guy that was arrested, was in a, a go-between. He had the cocaine to hand off to the next guy to come. And he got the cash he was going to send back to the drug dealers. So this guy got caught in a really bad spot. Uh, he had the drugs and the money. Uh, and he ended up doing uh, doing a, a lot of time in jail for that. That was a lot of cocaine, a couple, couple of kilos and all that money. Now, 
I, I mention that because when I watch this movie, Seven Five, and people say, "Oh, they must be scumbags. They must be this and that." I think they were bad guys, and I think they they were good guys that got corrupted by the area they were in, by seeing all of this, seeing this lifestyle, being in the middle of it. And when I had that experience, that my own personal experience, I'm saying, can you imagine how many times the cops must pull somebody over in a drug-infested neighborhood and everybody bails out of the car and they leave piles of money in the car? The temptation that that is. Now, if you've never had that temptation, you really should reserve your point of view. I'm not that kind of guy to take anything like that. But I'm telling you, you sit there staring at it and you could feel the pull of that temptation. Right now, once you do it once, in for a penny, you're in for a pound and you switch sides. And I didn't want to let these cops make a stupid decision. You know, well, if one of them had told me they had taken some of the money, that would have been the hardest decision in the world for me to do because I would have to tell them to put it back and then I have to decide, do I report that? Do I report that? Um, say, hey, they had it and they gave it back or this or that, or, did, or would I just do it as a lesson? Learned? I don't know. Thank God I didn't have to do it. But the point is, is that it's out there. Temptation can make any of us do something we never would think we would do. Uh, and watching that movie and comparing that to the experience I had, I could see how people could go bad. So I'm really interested in talking to this guy who was part of that group and getting his opinion on things, hearing what he has to say, and finding out who he is now. So that's chasing justice, right? That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be chasing some justice here. So I want to thank you all for being here. Uh, we will see you down the road. Remember, be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. This is Lieutenant Joe for Chasing Justice here on the America Out Loud Radio Network.